Many of us didn't grow up observing the church calendar, but since the fourth century, the church has ordered time according to the significant moments in the life of Jesus and the early church. This calendar begins with the celebration of Advent, a period of four weeks leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and we anticipate His second coming. In between these important Advents, we wait in the tension. We pray for deliverance. We cry out against injustice. We long for the culmination of redemption and the reign of King Jesus. The texts that are used for these weeks are not your typical Christmas passages. They are prophetic, apocalyptic, and filled with warning and hope. Each one leads us to consider Christmas for what it truly is. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Enjoy the episode. All right, this is Isaiah chapter 61. We'll be reading the uh, entire chapter, actually. Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of grace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and a, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The word of God for the people of God. So over the last few weeks in our Advent series, we've been looking at a collection of texts from the book of Isaiah. And in order to understand what's going on in Isaiah, I thought that it would be important for us to remind ourselves yet again of the historical context of the book of Isaiah. Now, in distinction from other books of the Old Testament, perhaps even other books of the Bible, there are diverse contexts embedded within this one canonical book in the gospel, if you will, of, of Isaiah. There's three different historical and political contexts that are embedded in the prophecies that are related here. Now, you might think offhand that when we're talking about prophecy, we're talking mainly about uh, telling the, the future, looking into the distant future to see what will come to be. 
But as you look into the Old Testament, it seems more likely that these are preachers that are addressing needs within their community and doing so in a way that is exhibiting what God is about to do in the midst of these people. So in the first 39 chapters, this is a pre-exilic context, a pre-exilic context. This is before the exile, specifically the exile of Judah by the Babylonians. You can see here that in, within each of these different sections of the book, there are certain world leaders on the stage. And in chapters 1 through 39, this is the time of the Assyrian Empire with all of their siege engines and their, their dominance of war. But this is looking at a specific context in the 8th century. And we hear from the very beginning, this is the, the word of Isaiah ben Amos, Isaiah the son of Amos, who's dealing with this 8th century context in the first 39 chapters of the book. But then as we flip the page from the end of chapter 39 into chapter 40, there's a completely different historical and political context that seems to be at hand in this selection of texts from Isaiah 40 through 55. It assumes not an Assyrian empire, but a Babylonian empire. Say Babylonian empire. And what these folks have done is they have showed up and they have uh, destroyed Jerusalem and sent people out of the land and taken them off to, to Babylon. This was about 150 years or so after this period here in Isaiah 1 through 39, we have Isaiah 40 through 55 that is talking about a completely different context. Now the people are looking around at what once was, the ruins of the temple, the ruins of their home, the ruins of what used to be, and now they find themselves in a foreign land, dealing with foreign issues, dealing with foreign gods and foreign political powers that now rule over them, and the dominant question of the day is, does God still care about me? Are God's promises still good with us? Does he have a plan and a purpose for our life? Or are we just out here left to die? Has the covenant, those promises that God has made to these people, has it been broken? So now these folks are dealing with what is going on. And throughout Isaiah 40 through 55, we hear competing voices. We hear the voice of the prophet, this person within that Isianic stream. I won't make you say Isianic stream, but this is not Isaiah ben Amos. This is not the 8th century prophet Isaiah, but this is one who is speaking on behalf of that sort of, of mindset, who is saying, there will be comfort. God still has a plan for you. God will lead you from the ruins back home to Jerusalem, and we will rebuild and throughout Isaiah 40 through 55, some of the voices that maybe I identify with most are the voices that say, ah, I doubt it. Like there's, there's just a, a doubting and a cynical voice that shows up within this section of the Bible that says, I hear what the prophet's saying, but I can't see it. We're nowhere near home. Everything that we have known has been completely taken from us. And now here we are alone and we've got this prophet that's telling us all these good things that are going to happen, but I don't see it. In the last section of the book of Isaiah, uh, it, it assumes a post-exilic context. So here in the exilic context, the Babylonian, Babylonian Empire has showed up. They have destroyed Jerusalem. They've destroyed the temple. They've destroyed the homes. They've taken the people into captivity. But on the world scene, we've moved from the Assyrian Empire. We've moved into the Babylonian Empire. And then the Persians show up and destroy the Babylonians. And it's at that time when they allow the exiles to go back home. 
But this is a weird time because they've heard all these good promises. They've heard about all the stuff that God is going to do, but they walk back to ruins. They walk back to what they've heard stories about, but they don't really see how God is going to do these great things, to inspire comfort, to inspire hope, and they walk back and they have to begin to rebuild. Now, if, if you care about this, some people really freak out about these three different contexts in the book of Isaiah. And just to throw this out there for you to think through, one scholar says, now it's possible to imagine that Yahweh is transporting Isaiah, namely the 8th century prophet in chapter 1, verse 1, transporting Isaiah into the distant future so that he speaks as if he is living then. In other words, this prophet in the 8th century is looking into the distant future saying, like, I'm going to see what's going to happen. And Israel is going to be uh, thrown into captivity and Judah and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and thrown into captivity, but then we're going to come marching back home. This scholar says that that could happen. Yahweh certainly could do that, but it looks an odd thing for Yahweh to do. And instead, it makes more sense for us to place these different sections of the text in their historical and political context to understand what is going on here, as if God is continuing to speak to these people, regardless of what it is that they're going through. For me, there's a beauty in that. For God continues to speak to his people regardless of what it is that they're going through, regardless of what the political structures of the day are doing and how they are being oppressed in that moment. But what I want us to see here is this uh, post-exilic section of the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 56 through 66. It's, it's 66. It's looking back to the texts that have preceded it. And the passage that we looked at in Isaiah 61 which some people would say is the centerpiece of Isaiah 56 through 66. It's looking back to some of the key texts that have been formed in Isaiah 40 through 55. In particular, it's picking up on this servant language in Isaiah 40 through 55. One of these texts says this, here is my servant whom I'm uphold. This is God talking, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. It's looking forward to a time when God will anoint someone, a servant, to do what God is wanting him to do for this community. And what we find in Isaiah 61 is a prophet, a poet, a preacher, someone beginning to step into that role in the immediate context and saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is a community, again, remember, in the midst of ruin, in the midst of devastation, in the midst of suffering, and now we have someone from this religious community saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me, and I have a job, and I'm going to proclaim good news to the poor. So despite their reconstitution in Jerusalem, John Golden Gay says, despite the fact that they go home, the people, they remain poor, they remain brokenhearted, they remain demoralized and crushed in mind and spirit. They're captives in their own land, they're prisoners, they're people who grieve the continued suffering of their city and who are metaphorically smeared with the ashes of mourning. Merry Christmas. This is not a, a really uh, good context as we think about 
Christmas. And as you guys think about, hey, in three days or in two days or in one day, I will be done with school and I get to go home and just like lay around. I don't know what you guys do, but I remember one of the best breaks was going home and taking up residency in my little office at my mom's house, my mom and dad's house, in my green recliner and just Harry Potter and me. And we were just hanging out for the entire break. It was beautiful. I actually just went to the store and bought Abe uh, an illustrated version of Harry Potter. And we're going to start reading that together. So that's, that's cool. He's, not, he's on break too from Asbury Daycare Center. And he's really looking forward to his time off. He's been saying, I don't know where he gets this. I think it's from Katie Foster when she comes and visits. He says, Dad, I'm doing a lot of homework today, just all day. I woke up and I've started doing homework and at night I'm doing homework. I'm like, well, buddy, you know, sometimes people like to not do homework. He's like, I just got a lot to do. <laughs> and it, it's true. Like when I went up to his room, he had like this coloring set up and he was like coloring in this reindeer or whatever. And it was like very intentional. So he is my son. We have no doubts about that. But here in, in this context, these people, they are grieving they are continuing uh, the suffering of their city. And this person, this prophet, this poet, this preacher is being raised up by God to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve. In Zion, these are all beautiful things that we could choose to spend time and, and break down and see what it is that this person is trying to communicate and why. But really tonight, I just want to focus on one phrase. The Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim freedom or liberty or deror to the captives. For an ancient reader, what they would have heard with this is an allusion back to an Old Testament law called the Law of Jubilee. It was a time in which God was instituting a, a forgiveness of debts, a restoration of the land and bringing people back home. It was a proclamation of liberty and freedom, and it was a restoring of the people instituted by God himself. And the poet here is very intentional in the way that he's using language. Now, I forgot to mention this in the beginning, okay? We're going to nerd out here for a bit, but this is like a two-part sermon, okay? Not two-part in the sense of I'm going to be talking for like an hour, so just you'll be okay. Um, I think it'll be pretty short, but two-part in the sense that we have to get this background from Isaiah chapter 61, and Leviticus chapter 25 in order to see how this makes sense for us in the New Testament. Okay, so here, as we look at this passage here and understanding a proclamation of freedom and liberty and deror for these, these captives, bringing them back, we understand the year of Jubilee, specifically in Leviticus chapter 25. And I'm just gonna read a couple of passages too to set the lay of the land. This is in the very beginning of chapter 25. It says, the Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, if you don't know or don't have a good uh, handle on what the Old Testament uh, has in store, this is one of the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. And this is Moses communicating the law to these people. The Lord says to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I am going to give you. Remember, the Pentateuch is all about land. God has this plan for these people to, to move them into the promised 
land. And these are the laws that are going to take place as these people are in the land. It says, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. The land, in other words, is to have rest. Looking back to the same structure in Genesis chapter one, six days God works and on the seventh day God takes a rest. And this is not like a rest from his activity. This is a kingly enthronement. But here in this passage, for six years you plant your vineyards and you yield a harvest. And then in the seventh year you stop and you allow the land itself to have rest. This passage is is, um, assumed in other parts of the law as well in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But as we move on, it also says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim deror, freedom, liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The land must not be sold permanently, it says later on in the chapter, because the land is mine and you reside in the land as foreigners and strangers throughout the land that you hold as possession. You must provide for the redemption of the land. The land is God's. And in the Old Testament, when they dole out the different portions of the land, it's understood that God owns the land and you just get to live there. You're a caretaker of God's good land. So he makes rules for them that they can't sell the land and get rid of it completely outside of their family. The land will always be theirs. Now, we understand, though, we don't really understand because we're not really an agrarian society, even though, yes, I did grow up on a pig farm, and yes, we did have some crops, right, Dad? Absolutely. But we're not an agrarian society where we have to be dependent upon the corn in our backyard. We can just go to Food Lion or Acme, if you like, if you're really swanky like that. (laughs) But what is happening here is uh, these folks, when they fell upon hard times, they had to make certain deals. They either had to sell their land to somebody or they had to go into indentured servitude to someone else. They had to work to pay off all of their stuff. But God says, this can happen. But in the 49th year and into the 50th year, Everything has to reset. The people who are in debt get to go back home. The people who have parceled out their land and sold it to other people, they get it back. Because God says, it's actually all mine. And I just want you guys to be caretakers of it. This is laws that are meant to protect people from shady business deals, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. This is meant to, to, to make uh, the land, uh, to make it be understood that it's God's and we are just the caretakers of it. And we see this outline within the Old Testament and we can hear hints of this in this post-exilic passage in Isaiah where he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim freedom. Liberty, deror, the captives will come home. I am proclaiming liberty, and you will go back to the place that was once yours, and you will inhabit it because God is wanting you to be a caretaker. 
This is really sophisticated stuff, and it's a beautiful image for these ancient Israelites. They would have heard this. They would have understood this, that what the prophet and what the poet was doing, he was saying, it's like, I understand that what you guys, you've been booted out of the land, but this is the year of jubilee when you will go back home. Your debts are paid. They are forgiven. You must now go back to your place of dwelling and take care of it once again. I've covered the check. Golden Gate says the implication is that the whole community is in a position like that of a bond servant after their maximum of six years of service or the freeing of the people to return to their own land where they have had to forfeit it after a maximum of 49 years. It's looking back to this law of, of jubilee, this proclamation of freedom and liberty, to roar for the captives. In this passage, we are proclaiming liberty in a very real and practical way. This is not a, a release from the sinfulness and the bondage that you have because of it. This is you get to go back home and you get to go rebuild where you once were because God says so. But for you as you sit there, you might be able to prioritize what's important for you as you think about these certain things. Now, we could also uh, put this in the category of the Gospels, right? So the Gospel authors, they have this collection of different stories about Jesus' life, some of which they were there for, some of which they heard about. And when they are putting their story together into a collection, they're able to prioritize certain stories so that their Gospel um, reads in a certain way, okay? We've got four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just for a little tidbit, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because they're very similar. They seem to be, um, it seems as though Matthew and Luke are based on Mark. And some people have hypothesized this book of sources called Q that's out there in the world that nobody really knows if it is out there. Anyway, then we've got John, who's about as crazy as a person can be, and he's doing his own thing. Okay? But they've got all these stories and all these traditions about Jesus and the way that they're gonna tell this story is they can order it in whatever way they want to. So for the Gospel of Luke, he's got all these different events in, in Jesus' life, the casting out of demons, the feeding of the 5,000, the calling of the disciples, um, the sermon on the plain, when Jesus calms the sea, all of these monumental moments you can see in the upper right-hand corner, the passion narrative, Jesus being led to the cross, Jesus dying, Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, I want you to see something here because the author of Luke, what he does is he takes a story that is buried, that is embedded within Matthew and Mark's gospel. It is not an important story. It's in the text, but it doesn't seem to be prominent in any way whatsoever. But the author of Luke takes this story of the Nazareth sermon and puts it in the very front of Jesus' ministry as if to say, in order to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand this sermon. We have to understand what is going on when Jesus goes back home and preaches to all the people that knew little Jesus cruising around the streets of Galilee in Nazareth. Okay, if you can just wrap your brain around that. But for Luke, this was the story, the first story of Jesus' ministry. And this meant everything into how he was organizing his gospel. 
This is the text, Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Some people say that Jesus might have been known as like a revolutionary and radical so it was important for him to be in the synagogue with regularity so that no one would be able to say that he was like going rogue and outside of the bounds of um, structured religion at the time. It says, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, before we even see what what he's reading, and you can probably understand where we're going with this, um, the synagogue had a certain structure to it. When you walk in the doors of TRP, you know there's a certain structure. You're probably gonna get a call to worship. You're probably gonna hear a few songs. At some point, you're gonna have somebody come up and do a reading, light some candles, whatever. At the end of the song set, what do we sing? The doxology, yes. And then we have some announcements. I do some talking. We eat communion together, and then we give ascending, and then we go home. There's like that structure. Well, within the synagogue in the first century, there was also a structure where people would show up, and there's debates on what this looks like, but people would show up and they would read the, the Shema, this prayer, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would offer prayers, some of them set, some of them spontaneous. They would have a reading from the Torah or the Pentateuch or the law, and then they would have a reading from the prophets. At both of these readings, you might also get an Aramaic translation because this is the language that the people spoke at the time. So there would be a reading in Hebrew, that nobody really knew. And then somebody would say, oh, this is what this means in Aramaic, the language of the day. And they would read the passage again in in Aramaic. Actually, they would just translate. There was no reading in the synagogue in Aramaic. And then they would have someone stand up and give an instruction, a message, a, a, a sermon, if you will. And then they would conclude with a benediction. So Jesus is following all of this. You can imagine there's some prayers being prayed. There's some readings of the scripture. There's some Aramaic stuff thrown in. And then Jesus stands up to give an instruction. Anyone who was a qualified male was able to ascend whatever it was. They probably didn't have a high pulpit like this, but they would just kind of walk up to the front and say, I'd like to say something. Give me the scroll. And you could either comment on what has been written, or you could go to the scroll yourself and find a different passage. So Jesus, it seems, he's showing up, he's standing up, he's getting ready to give the instruction. He goes specifically to the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It was handed to him, he unrolls it, he finds the place that he wants to read, and he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, deror for the captives. For the prisoners. He has sent me to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then this is just a moment in Jesus's story that I think is so awesome. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, he sits down, and then Luke says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Everyone is is engaged and wondering what it is that he's going to do. And then he just says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he goes and sits down. Yeah, like if, if there was a microphone in the first century, which there's not, this would have been the time for Jesus just to drop the mic. Quotes this passage, which remember, it's hearkening back to a time of destruction, suffering, persecution, And God's saying, I will restore you. 
I will bring you out of exile and I will take you back home. And Jesus says to the people in the synagogue, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna take us back home. Now, they weren't dealing with an exile in a, in a literal way, but he was speaking metaphorically about what it was that he was going to do. He was, in a sense, just saying, guys, it's happening. And for Luke, this is the story that frames his entire retelling of what Jesus was about, the healing ministry that he had, casting out of demons, the food miracles, the teachings, all of it was framed by Jesus saying, I am taking you home. I am bringing the captives out of prison and into liberty and into freedom and into life. And everything that he does from then on out in Luke's gospel demonstrates this. Again, we could go back to this passage in Isaiah. The implication is that the whole community are enslaved. And Jesus says, give me the text of Isaiah. Let me read you guys something. The Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the captives, to proclaim liberty and freedom for everyone here. It's time to go home. But what is so interesting about this, it doesn't stop there because the people begin to say, whoa, isn't that little, little JC? Like, we, we know him. He's been running around all over the place. Like, we, we know Jesus. He's like a little carpenter. He's Joseph's son, right? Like, we, we've seen him on the schoolyard playing and stuff. I changed his diapers when I was watching him as a kid. You know, like they, they begin to doubt what Jesus is, is saying. And then Jesus launches into this. Now, Jesus was, he was radical and he was out there. And sometimes he did some stuff to push some people's buttons. But this is what he says in response to this sort of stuff. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you have done in Capernaum. This is where it gets dicey. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Jesus is looking back to the Old Testament, remembering a time when Elijah was trying to do, um, was doing miracles amongst the people in the midst of a famine, but it says, yet Elijah was not sent to the people of Israel, but he was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Jesus is going back to the Old Testament to say, remember Elijah? He was doing stuff that you guys didn't get, and he was opening up the doors wide for people that you didn't think should be in. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all of the people who were fascinated with Jesus' teaching, they were just in the synagogue being so, so on the edge of their seat with what he was saying. When they heard this, it says they were furious. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus, don't get this, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. For Jesus, in this passage, he's demonstrating the time that Isaiah was talking about, it's happening right here, and I'm bringing it to bear. It's time for you guys to go home, get on board. 
Don't start with me with that. Isn't this Joseph's kid stuff? Because we've got stuff to do. Either you're with me or you're not. And Jesus, when he's saying it's happening, he's opening up the doors. It's not just happening in the way that you think or for the people that you think it is meant for. It's happening for the people. I say this every week. Get used to it on the margins and the outskirts, the people that the church perhaps has written off and not allowed to be part of the story. Jesus says it's for them because you guys don't want it. It's time to go home. My hope tonight is that with this, and again, this is not a Christmas passage, but man, when you see in your nativity that little baby Jesus, you can't not think of this kind of brash, kind of radical, crazy rabbi who's out there doing this teaching that says, I want the people out there to come in and to get it, and I want the people that have felt, um, felt suffering and oppression, I want them to go back home, and I want to take them there, but I'm gonna do it in a way that looks very different than what they're expecting. And for us today, now 2,000 years removed, even farther from the time of Isaiah, 2,500 years or so removed from this announcement of the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now we sit here and we still need this message that Jesus offers us a homecoming. Jesus offers us a removal from exile to go back home to where we are intended to be so that we can be the caretakers of the land that God has given to us so that we can become the people that shout from the mountaintops the good news of what Jesus has done, not just the spiritual release that we feel when we are forgiven of our sins, but this literal, tangible restoration that we become a part of through our actions, through our words, and through our deeds. If we just leave this gospel in the seats, we are not doing what we are called to do. We have had Jesus go before us, the one who was truly anointed by God to bring captives into freedom. But now we get to participate with him in that good news, not only to receive it for ourselves, but to give that gospel to others. No matter where you guys are in the midst of your uh, journeys, no matter where you guys are in the midst of your contemplation of who Jesus is, I hope that you will contemplate this call that it's time to go home. It's time to be restored. And all we have to do is say, Jesus, I'm in. Whatever it is that you're calling me to do, I will do. However I can be an agent of restoration in this place, I will be. Whenever I see people on the margins and the outskirts or people right here in front of me in my family that are broken and hurting, I will, through your power and through your spirit leading me, be able to step in and be the balm that their soul needs. My hope is that we get inspired as we look towards Christmas, not to just infant baby Jesus in the manger, but we get to see the entirety of his life and what he is calling us all into to celebrate together. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.